looking forward to that this summer. All right, Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to find ourselves today. So if you want to take out your Bibles, now if you're a child of technology, you can open up your phones, and I don't think you're just texting people. I will believe that you are, in fact, in Matthew 13. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to be, and this is the start of what's known as the parabolic discourse. Uh, I've shared with you before as we go through the book of Matthew that Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And as he writes to this audience, he is uh, writing to people that are religious and they are conservative and they love themselves the law. They love the law. They love all of Moses' writings. And so as Matthew is portraying Jesus as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, this one that they've waited on for thousands of years, what he's going to interestingly enough do is he's actually going to give them five different teachings of Jesus. We call them discourses because it's a fancy way to say teaching. Uh, Five different teachings of Jesus that in fact line up with each of the five books of Moses, the law. And so as the uh, writer, Matthew in this case, is sharing with us that there's a greater than Moses now here, the prophet is actually what Moses prophesied about that was going to come and be greater than him, that the greater than Moses also gives five greater teachings than even what Moses gave. And so each one of the messages that Jesus gives in Matthew documents lines up with a different book. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the the beginnings of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, the establishment of that. And then we see the book of Genesis, right? The origins, the establishment of the world. Secondly, we saw the, the mission discourse, which he covered a few weeks back in Matthew chapter 10, and it's all about going out and being on mission for Jesus. He sends the apostles out. This word apostle just means sent ones. And so he sends them out to be a light to the world. And what do we see in the book of Exodus? But Moses is called to go and bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of the world, to be a light to the entire world. And so That's the second discourse. And then this week, we're going to be in the parabolic discourse or for the next several weeks. And that lines up with the book of Leviticus. Uh, We'll get more into that in just a minute. Uh, Then the church discourse in Matthew 18, this is the establishment of the church where Jesus is setting up what the church is going to look like. And what we find is it correlates to numbers, which does have numbers in it, by the way. But it's not all about numbers. There are actually some tremendous stories in the book of Numbers, but it's a lot about God establishing his people. He's laying out what the structure of a group of people would actually look like. And so what we see is Jesus teaching about the structure of the church, how he's going to build it and establish it. And then finally, the last book Moses writes is the book of Deuteronomy, which is the summation, the culmination of uh, all the law. A lot of it is repeating. That's why the word a duet is in there. It's, it's a, a culmination of it. It's a repeating of, but it's also sharing prophecies of the latter days. And what we see is in Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus shares on the Mount of Olives what it's going to look like in the last days. And he's also going to summarize all of his teachings up to that point. So that we'll be there in a few months, don't worry. But where we are today is the parabolic discourse here in Matthew 13. Now, the word parable, it's really two Greek words smushed together. It's the word para and then bole. And what it means, literally, para means to come alongside or to pair with. And then bole means to cast or to throw. And so what we find is Jesus is going to take earthly stories and he's going to cast them alongside a heavenly meeting. He's trying to communicate to them heavenly thoughts and ideas, but he's going to take things that they can understand in order to explain them in a way that makes sense to them. So he's going to cast them alongside. That's where we get the term parable from. And speaking of the parabolic discourse, what it really is all about is kingdom living. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, is what he told us in his early teachings. And now he's going to say the kingdom of heaven looks like this. This is what kingdom living is going to be all about. And it's really all about sanctification. That's a big word. It's scary when we say it in church. But sanctification just means to be set apart. To be set apart for God's glory, for his usefulness. Which, interestingly enough... The book of Leviticus, and I know you guys love to dig into the book of Leviticus. All those sacrifices, I mean, boy, the looks on your face right now, you're so excited about Leviticus. But even though we don't like it all the time, the, the key phrase in that book is, be holy, for I am holy. It's really all about holiness 
in sanctification and being set apart. And so that's precisely what Jesus is going to teach them on, about how to be holy as he is holy, how to be set apart. And in fact, uh, as we think about that, and, and you think, well, Leviticus was written to a group of priests, and we're not priests, right? Most of us would, would probably agree. We, we surely are not priests. But if you turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, this is what Peter writes there. He says, but you, speaking of you, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. As saints and believers and followers of Jesus, you are, in fact, a royal priesthood. This is you. You're being called to be set apart. So as much as we don't like to think about ourselves as priests, the word kind of freaks us out a little bit. The reality is uh, Peter communicates it. Scripture is clear. We are called to be a royal priesthood, a set-apart people, to show exactly what different living can look like, to be sanctified. And I love what the Old King James says. If any of you are uh, Old King James fans, uh, he, it actually is translated, you are a, a peculiar people instead of a special people. So there you have it. When you leave today, if you remember nothing else, remember we are a peculiar people. And, and, and that kind of offends maybe a little bit. We think, oh, I'm not peculiar. But the reality is to the world who's living the way the world knows how to live, you're a peculiar people. You are. It, it, how, do you, how do you have hope in situations that there can be no hope? How do you have joy in spots where there should be no joy present? That's peculiar. So as much as they might be offended at you and not want to uh, talk to you in certain situations, uh, the reality is when things really go down in their lives, I'm talking about the people that know you and you've been sanctified, who do they call when things get hard? They call the peculiar people. They call God's special people, his chosen people, the royal priesthood. They're going to ask you to pray for them. Why? Because they know there's something different about you. Something maybe you want to call it peculiar. I call it chosen, special. So that's what the parables are really all about and what kingdom living really looks like. Back to Matthew 13, and here we're going to pick up in verse 1. And we're hoping to get through verse 23 today. And we're specifically, specifically going to cover the parable of the sower. Verse 1 reads, And on the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And the, and the great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And then he spoke many things to them in parables. So in verse 1, we notice uh, Matthew writes, and on that same day. That calls us back to the same day that we've been covering over the last several weeks in Matthew 12. This is the day where Jesus was approached and uh, persecuted for healing, and, and in particular for delivering a man who was demon-possessed. In fact, they came to him and they said, you must be doing this by the power of the demons. They accused Jesus of being possessed himself. And, and you might recall, he said, look, a, king, a house divided against itself cannot stand. How could I, being possessed with a demon, deliver anyone from demons? It makes no sense. Satan is no dummy. He's not going to go and cast himself out. And so this is the position that's beginning to be taken by the Pharisees. The hatred for Jesus is now rising. That's a lot of this sub-theme that we see taking place as we go through Matthew. It's the rising dislike, hatred, disgust for Jesus and what he's up to. And so as that happens, they come to him and they say, show us a sign. And, and they, they want to see some kind of a sign so he can prove that he's the Messiah, forgetting that he's been showing them all sorts of signs. And they didn't like that. And so what he says very clearly is, no sign for you! He doesn't really say that, but I'm a Seinfeld fan. So he says, no sign for you. You're not going to get any sign. You come searching for signs. I'm going to give you no more sign except for this. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, which is three days and three nights. Jonah was in the belly of the fish before he was spit back up on the shore. Three days and three nights, the Son of Man is going to be in the belly of the earth. So the last sign he's going to give them is the sign of the resurrection. That's what he's specifically referring to. And then in verse 2, as the multitudes gathered and they pressed down upon him, he then retreated out into a boat and pushed himself away out off the shore. Now you could read into this 
and realized that as they pushed into him, and they were essentially trying to push him away, what he did was he actually moved away. <laughs> they, they were pressing on him, forcing him into a spot, not wanting to believe him, accusing him of all kinds of things, not wanting to believe the message, and so he steps back. But he doesn't leave them entirely. He just pushes himself a little bit off of the shore. And as he gets there, I find it fascinating, maybe because I'm a nerd, uh, that he actually sets up this amphitheater-type setting. So if you think about it, Jesus is out here on the water. They're now in the, the hills, the foothills along the Sea of Galilee, where they're able to sit up along the hillside, and he's able to teach and project. And he does this so that everyone can hear him. I think that's important to point out. He desires for everyone to hear him. He's not looking to only speak to the people on the front row, thankfully, because none of you are brave enough to sit on the front row. He's not looking to just talk to front row people, middle row people, back row people. The real point is he wants everyone to hear his voice. And so he establishes himself in this amphitheater-type setting, and then he begins to speak in parables. But before he does, notice he actually sits in the boat, which by the way, is one of the reasons why I get to sit to teach you. So if you think it's a little strange that I'm sitting up here on an awesome swivel stool, this is one of the reasons why. It's in order to not just preach to you, but to actually conversate. Jesus sat down with nothing between him and the people. We don't have a pulpit for that very reason. I don't want anything between me and you. Right? We're all in the same spot trying to figure things together. Maybe in different points of our journey, for sure, but we're all working our way through this life. And so it was very conversational. Now, Jesus did make them all stand, so thankfully, uh, I'm not asking you to stand. If I did, there'd probably be much less of you here. So stay seated. You're okay right there in your, uh, in your chairs. But this is the spot that he was in. He, he's having this conversation with them. And he begins to speak to them in parables. Now, it's important to point out that parables are not an allegory. An allegory is something that was meant to be philosophized about and thought through and rolled around in your head to where you can come up with all these different reasons and things and possibilities. A parable, while it's an earthly story to convey a heavenly meaning, it's also meant to drive home one central point, one key idea. So for years upon years... Lots of pastors, way smarter than me, have tried to come up with all sorts of ideas and things and gone down weird roads. Uh, frankly, I'm not intelligent enough to do that. Plus, I don't think that's really what Jesus is trying to communicate. That in a parable, he's trying to communicate a central idea or point and drive that home. And he's going to do that by giving them things that they can understand, ways they can understand it. So let's uh, pick up at the end of verse 3 with the parable of the sower. He says, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And he, as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. And the birds came and devoured them. And some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And then in verse 7, And some fell along the thorns. And the thorns sprang up and choked them. But the others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And so Jesus gives them a story that's all about agriculture. Remember, northern Israel is an area that's dominated by our agriculture, even still to this day, very much like central Illinois. We understand farming. We get agriculture. We might not all be farmers. We might none of us be farmers, but we all understand farming. It was very much a part of their life, a part of the way they were able to raise their children and their families and their economy. And so he's going to give them a story that's all about agriculture. And he's talking about four different types of ground. The first is the hard ground. This was essentially the walk paths, the areas that have been uh, under people's foot over time. And then just as time has gone on, they've been beaten down and made harder and harder and harder to where as the seed falls on them, it can't sink in at all. And so what Jesus shares is that then the birds of the air come and they eat the seed. They carry it off. The second type of ground he talks about is the stony ground. So as they've cultivated the field, what happens is you cultivate rocks out. They end up all along the edges, right? 
But there's no depth to the earth. There's only stones and rocks. And so as the seed falls in these areas, the plants spring up immediately, but because they have no root system, as soon as any kind of thing comes along, the wind, the, the weather of any type, the sun beats down on it, they just wither and die. There's no root system there to sustain it. So the third type then that he shares is about the thorny ground. Now this is ground that has been uh, cultivated it's ready to receive seed, and yet it's not properly maintained. So if you've ever done any kind of gardening at all, you know that once you've cultivated your garden and you've got it all ready to go, if you're not diligent about seeding and keeping the weeds out, uh, what happens is uh, the, the weeds grow up. They begin to overtake the garden. So I'm not a gardener. My mother-in-law is, and she is out in her garden constantly pulling weeds, messing around out there, you know, making sure there's no weeds that come up in the garden, the area that she's cultivated. Uh, my great-grandfather, Grandpa Dude, was always all about his garden. He would sit out there and, and on a bucket watching his garden grow. He would say he's, he's encouraging the tomato plants, watching them grow. He was constantly pulling weeds, or perhaps he was just avoiding his family. I'm not sure which. Uh, probably a combination of the two. But needless to say, you have to be out there and be uh, diligent in order to have regular weeding so that thorns and weeds don't overtake your garden. Finally then, the good ground. This is the only ground that grew a crop, sustained the crop, and not only that, it actually provided an increase. Now we can get caught up in what the increase uh, looks like, some 100, some 60, and some 30-fold. What's the reason behind the increase? Maybe there's some kind of math here. I would tell you, don't get caught up in that because the reality is good ground always produces an increase. That's the real point. We don't get to decide how much increase. The point is uh, it's going to be substantial. If you put an investment in and it came back 30 times, you would be pretty satisfied with your investment. So that's the point that's being driven home here right off the bat as he gives this story, this parable of the sower. Now then, continuing in verse 10, we're told the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? This is their question. And then in verse 11, and he answered to them and said, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him will be given more, and he, who, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Remember the key word in all of Matthew is the word fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes have been closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand and with their hearts uh, they should turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are you for your eyes they see and your ears they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so beginning in verse 10, this is the question that the disciples have for him. Why do you speak to them in parables? Isn't it interesting? They didn't come to him and say, please explain. But instead they said, why do you speak to them that way? Now, have you ever been in that spot? Probably none of you because you're holier than I am. But have you ever read or heard a really awesome message and you thought, boy, so-and-so could really use that? Boy, that message should drive right into their heart. I mean, this thing is for them. That's precisely what these guys said. They heard this message of Jesus, and their first question is, why do you speak to them that way? Right? If you've ever been to church and had a pastor, boy, he's on fire, and he's really, he's just coming after people, and you've gone home on Sunday and go, man, the preacher really gave him hell today. I mean, he went right after those sinners. Forgetting the fact that if it wasn't for sinners, we wouldn't actually have a church at all. Right? So the first question we should ask is with any message of Christ, what does he have to say to me? What is he trying to talk to me about, speak to me first about? 
So Jesus, being as gracious as what he was, he doesn't reprimand these guys for asking about everyone else instead of themselves, but he goes on to say in verse 11, it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now we read that word mysteries and we often get confused. He's not talking about uh, like Scooby-Doo and the mystery bus mysteries. There's no ruh-ruh-raggy, nothing like that happening here. But he's talking about mysteries from the Old Testament, things that were concealed that are now in the life of Jesus being revealed. That's where we get this a catchy phrase that the Old Testament concealed is the New Testament revealed. Really, all of our New Testament scriptures are ultimately just expounding upon what was already written in the Old Testament. Jesus is on every page. That's what he's going to tell them, that these mysteries are now being revealed to you because you have open eyes. And so when we look at what is the purpose of parables, the first thing is it's to teach truth to the disciples. He was actually trying to teach them uh, before everybody else. This is the first truth. He wants to communicate truth to these men. Secondly is, in verses 12 and 13, it's to hide truth from the hard-hearted. Now that might seem cruel, but the reality is these hard-hearted people had been consistently ignoring the truth time and time and time again. that the, the reality is in Scripture, there's only so long God's going to let us ignore the truth and ignore the truth and ignore the truth before finally he's just going to say, you can have it the way you've wanted it. You can have exactly what you're asking for. If you go through Romans chapter 1, that's precisely what the Apostle Paul is talking about. When he says they, they have over and over again rejected God, and so he gave them over to their own debased minds. By the way, as you read Romans chapter 1, just think about where we're at in our society today, and you see precisely what Paul was talking about to the church in Rome. It, it's a desire to call bad good and good bad over and over again before God finally just says, that's fine, you can have it your way. Thirdly is to fulfill prophecy in verses 14 through 17. Now this is prophecy that was given by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 some 700 years before the birth of Christ. And, and what Isaiah is communicating there through his pen and what's Holy Spirit inspired is that hearing they shall hear and they shall not understand and seeing they will see but not perceive. They're not going to understand these simple truths I'm communicating. And then in verse 15, for their hearts of these people have grown dull. That word dull, you could also write in the margins of your Bible, means fat. They'd actually grown fat. Now we get all spun up about that word. He's not talking about physical obesity. He's talking about spiritual in their hearts, they become obese. And specifically, that reference, uh, I'll take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. They loved uh, Moses, remember? They loved the law of Moses. So Jesus is going to give them a key word from their law, and that is this fatness of their heart. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 15, Moses writes this, But Jeshuron, which is just a poetic name for Israel, it's, it actually just means righteousness, but Jeshuron grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. And then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. So what Moses is seeing into the future of Israel is they were actually going to grow comfortable with where they were at. And in comfort, in laziness, in obesity, spiritual obesity that they're going to actually forsake God in the middle of all this. And what you see is these proud people that have so much tradition and so much religiosity, they have become comfortable in their system. So much so that they actually ignored the Messiah who is right in front of them. Which is how Jesus is going to wrap this section of teaching up in verses 16 and 17. He says, look here, You've got me standing right in front of you. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, but they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Moses and Abraham and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these men throughout the Old Testament. What did they desire to see more than anything? The Messiah. 
They prophesied of him. They, dream, they dreamt of him. They, they, they had this hope inside because of the Messiah who was to come. And here are these men, and they've got the Messiah. He's standing literally right in front of them, and they do not recognize him except for his disciples. And what he's saying is you guys are more blessed than even these Old Testament heroes because you've got me right here in front of you. And the reality of it is we are actually even more blessed than they were. If you're able to receive that, we are more blessed than even these disciples of old, even these apostles, because while they were able to walk with the Messiah and spend three years with him, we are able to have his very word in our hand. They didn't have the New Testament unveiling these mysteries. And more than that, if you receive Jesus as your Savior, you're actually with him every single day residing inside you, not just for a three-year run and then he leaves. You're able to have him daily. That's what the Christian life is all about. And here's another bit of truth to, to, to lay out there. The Christian life is not something that can just be maintained. So often we want to get over into that uh, that HOV lane where you're able to travel and just put the cruise control on, right? I've got lots of people on board so I can just travel with no traffic. Here I go. There's no cruise control setting in the Christian life. That if we desire to just set it like that, the, the truth is we're going backwards. That with Jesus, you're either proceeding forward with him or you are backsliding. There is no just uh, hanging out. And so that's a lot of what's being communicated here if we have ears to hear it. So from this point, even though they did not ask for him to explain the parable, that would have been maybe a good question to ask him right off the bat, he is gracious in this spot to actually give them the explanation, the interpretation of this parable, which he does not do every time for them. So pick up with me in verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside, but he who received the seed on the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures only for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles." And now he who received the word among the thorns is he who receives the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. And then in verse 23 finally, but he who received the seed on good ground is he who hears the word, understands it, and who indeed bears fruit and produces some 100, some 60, and some 30-fold. And so... In verses 18 and 19, Jesus is now going to begin his explanation of the parable of the sower. As we go through parables over these next several weeks, let me just tell you, there are Bible constants with these. And Jesus is going to start by unveiling a few of them for us. Uh, first of all, the seed. It's always, throughout the parables, the word of God. So if you want to just remember that, the seed is always the word of God. The second biblical constant is birds. They're always demonic. They're angry birds, dirty birds. Anytime we see birds in Scripture, with just a couple of random exceptions, they are always evil spirits that have come along to snatch away the Word of God. And then finally, the ground in this example, this is a picture of a person's heart. This is their heart condition. And so with these biblical constants in mind, let's go back through this. He first mentions the hard ground. This is the one that is hard-hearted, that has been perhaps trampled on by others, maybe also done some trampling themselves, but then just over time, hardening, a hardening, a hardening of the heart to the point to where they can no longer receive the word. That as the word is dropped upon them and scattered out there, it just sits. And what happens is the dirty birds, the demonic, the, the evil one comes along and snatches the word up, and there's nothing ever received. There's nothing produced from this person's life. That's the hard ground. The second one is, in verses 20 and 21, then the stony ground. And this is him who, who has uh, rocky places, who's not gone through and actually taken and removed the rocks. And because of that, there, the word cannot receive any kind of root system. There's no growing down into the ground. So as soon as tribulation comes... 
Notice with me, the word is actually received by this person in joy. They're excited about coming to church. Maybe it's been years since they've been there. So excited, and yet they've not removed any of the rocks, any of the things that would actually get in the way and block the growth of the word in their life. And so as soon as trials and tribulations come, by the way, they always come to all of us. None of us uh, is unique in this. We always have trials and tribulations, opportunities to grow. But for this person, uh, when the trial comes, uh, what we see is the w- immediately it's received with joy. But because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Notice the writing there. He receives persecution and tribulation because of the word. When you are trying to make changes in your life, when you're trying to pick through the rocky places of your life and you receive the word of God, you are going to get persecuted specifically because of the word. So, so friends or frenemies, you might want to call them, will come along and accuse you of all sorts of things. They'll drum up all kinds of things about you. Perhaps you'll get nasty emails or you'll get the phone call or the text message that you didn't expect to get from people because of the word of God. And if you don't have a root system, here's the reality. It's going to cause that person to wither and fall away. Thirdly, then, there is the stony ground, or the thorny ground, I'm sorry, the thorny ground. And in verse 22, now, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. So this person actually has fertile ground. They're, they're hearing the word. They're taking it in. The ground has been cultivated. They're ready to receive. But notice with me, he who receives the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. They're ready to not only receive the word, but also the ands. And you've got to watch out for the ands. Because here they come, and they're going to sow other things other than the word. The weeds are sown in there. The thorns are, are sown in there. And because of these things, they cannot properly grow. So over time, what happens in the garden is the weeds and the thorns take over, and the good stuff, the tomatoes, the corn, the green beans that you wanted to grow so badly cannot they're choked out the very life is taken away because of the cares of this world and so this is a spot that i find the church falls in all the time i fall into in my own life all the time is that i've got a heart that's fertile that's ready to receive but because i'm not monitoring what i receive in all kinds of other stuff actually comes in and begins to grow and so the encouragement here is to actually be careful be watchful over your heart as it's been made fertile, because all sorts of other things can come into play. How do they come into play? Well, it's pretty easy. You've got two eyes, two ears, and they are constantly being bombarded by the idle phone that we hold in our hands, by the TV that's on our wall, by the radio that's in our car. Constantly there's this ingestion of other things, outside influences, people in our lives that want to speak into it but aren't speaking truth. All these things come into play, and if we're not careful... If we're not careful to root out distractions, what happens is the good word, the word that we've received, the one that we know is true and right, it can't grow. The conditions aren't good for it anymore. So if you've lived any life at all, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've received in things that were not good. And I will tell you also as, as a warning, those things are hard to get out. Young people, those things that you let in, they are hard to get rooted out. You accept them in, thinking that this feels good like everything else, and they take hold. You've got to really get in there. Anyone that's ever gardened knows that getting the weeds and getting the thorns out, it's difficult work to do. I was putting the dog in the cage yesterday, and, you know, I'm trying to get kids out the door. Angela's here with the if gathering, so I'm managing six kids. You can imagine how well that's going. And and as I'm doing that, and I'm trying to get the, the dog in the cage, I'm just like, come on, dog, come on, dog, Snoop Dogg, and then immediately lyrics pop into my head. Snoop Dogg from 1993, like that. I mean, instantly comes back, dog, doggy dog. I mean, I'm, I'm like going into it. I'm, I can't even repeat what pops into my head, and I haven't listened to rap music in 20 years. That's the kind of stuff that we have to be leery of, that we have to be mindful for, because, boy, it, it takes root. It grabs a hold in there, and it's hard to get out. 
And so these distractions that come along, the, the cares of this world that so often want to choke out, and they seem good at the time, right? Like, there are things when I look back at my life in church, it wasn't always intention. I did not intend to end up where I ended up. I intended to do well. But because I wasn't mindful over the distractions and mindful over the cares of this world, the, the riches that this world seemed to promise, the next thing you know, uh, the good stuff all gets choked out. And it's nothing but weeds. And there's no fruit. So finally, where we end up in verse 23 is then with the good ground. But he receives the word. He receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some 100, some 60, and some 30-fold. And so the good ground, what I wanted to point out, it's the same seed. The seed does not change. Thank God the seed does not change. He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. The only thing that ultimately changes is our heart. The condition of our heart is the only thing that changes. And in this spot for this person, their heart is cultivated. It's ready to receive the word. They're keeping a close eye on their fields. And they're able to grow in that and in knowledge of him. And so what can we take from the lessons of this parable of the sower? Three things I wanted to leave you with today. First of all, we can only give what we've first received. That seems like Captain Obvious, but that's what I'm good at, pointing out the obvious. We can only give it if we first received it, which means the first step is we must know the word. We have to have knowledge of the word of God. We have to be in our Bibles. It's not enough to just come here on Sundays, although this is a start. This is a great spot to be, and we are going to go through the word of God, but it's not enough. So we have to know the word, and then the second piece is we have to then do the word. What James says is, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. It's not good enough to just hear the word and do nothing about it. But it's to, it's to know the word and then to be able to do the word. And then finally, to teach the word. That is the progression of things. It is to know it first, to do it second, and then to teach it third. So often we want to skip a step and go right on to teaching. It doesn't work like that. It's to, to know him first. And so we have to first receive it. Uh, secondly, then once we are ready and prepared to teach the word, and that doesn't mean sitting up here every Sunday, by the way, to teach the word. That means to share it with others in your life as you interact. As we're ready to teach the word, we are called to sow. Who is the sower in this story? Yes, it is God, but it's actually him working through us. We're the chosen vessel to sow seeds in other people's lives. And so we are called to sow seed. And what then happens with the seed? I'm going to turn with you back to Isaiah chapter 55. If any of you are highlighter people, I'd encourage you to highlight these two verses. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 10. For as rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but, the, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And so then in verse 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing which I sent it. This is why we are called to sow. Because what he's communicating here through the pen of Isaiah is my word never returns void. If you wonder why we read through the word of God and we study it in this way, maybe it's odd, maybe it's not, but here's the reality. We do it in this way because it never returns void. I might completely blow it some Sunday. You may be sitting there right now going, yep, you blew it today. <laughs> it's possible that I did. But here's the reality. Even if I blow it, even if I miss all the points that I wanted to hit, even if none of it really seems to sink in and I go home and think, man, I completely whiffed today here's what i know for certain his word never returns void it shall accomplish what he sets it out to accomplish i came to a real understanding and a relationship with jesus christ because of his word not because of some man who sat on a swivel stool that was his instrument but his word is what did it 
We were in Psalms for a year, for goodness sakes. His word changed my life. That's what I've committed myself to, is to just simply teach the word of God for this very reason. And it will accomplish what he pleases. Now, if you're a person who has sown into people's lives, and you go, well, I've sown, and I've sown, and I don't see any return, and it's heartbreaking. It, it, it crushes me because I'm trying to sow into their lives, and in tears I sow, and nothing happens. I'm going to flip to the left a little bit into uh, Psalm 126. Be encouraged by this. Psalm 126 verse 5 says this, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bearing sheaves with him. If you are a person who has sown into the lives of friends and family and seen no return, and it's caused you to lay awake at night with tears rolling down your face, here's the promise of the word of God. If you do that, you're going to reap in joy. That there's going to come a day where you're going to be able to see the fruit of what he has done with the seed that you've scattered. That's his glorious promise. It might not be in this life, by the way. It might be in the life to come, but you're going to be able to stand there with him as he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to go, look at what the seed did. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Look at what you scattered out there. This is the reason why we sow. Lastly, I'm going to go one last spot in this section. I apologize for the Bible drills, but Mark chapter 4, verse 26. This is Mark uh, directly after this parable in Mark's account. This is what Jesus says in verse 26. He says, The kingdom of God is, is, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep at night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields a crop by itself, first the blade, and then the head, and after, the full head of, and after that the full head of grain. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts a sickle in, because the harvest has come. Here's what we're called to do. Just so. How's it going to work? I have no earthly idea. I have no clue. I should probably have something way more eloquent to say to you right now, but I don't know how it works. I just know we're called to sow. We're called to scatter it out there as much as possible, and then we lay our head down at night, and what happens is God brings it forth. He just does. He raises it up. First the blade, and then the head, and then the full head of grain. We might not even be there in this life, as I just shared with you, to see the full fruit of what you've sown. He knows, and he's the one going to put the sickle in for the harvest. Now then finally, lastly, we, I wanted to share with you that people must have an open heart to receive the word. That this is ultimately what Jesus is communicating. It's about your heart condition. And so Paul says to the Ephesian church there in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, I apologize for the Bible drills, but then I did it again. Ephesians 1.18 says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The, the phrase there, the eyes of your understanding, could also be translated the eyes of your heart, if you have a different translation. So may the eyes of your heart be enlightened. The eyes of your heart have to be opened in order to receive the word. How then do you get that? How do, how do you change what the heart condition is that you possess? This is all the more complicated it is. You ask. You ask him. If you're in here this morning and you've got a hard heart and you've been trampled on and maybe you've trampled others, ask him to break that thing up. Ask him to, to go in and begin to cultivate that spot in your heart that has been so hardened that you didn't think it could ever have life again because it can it might hurt a little bit. The hard ground takes a little while to plow, but yet he is more than capable of doing it. If you're here and you've got stones and you've got things along the edges of the field that, that you feel good when you leave, but then immediately the, the, the fruit gets taken away because of the stones, ask him to remove those things in your life. 
Ask him to expose what it is that you've not been willing to grab a hold of, and he will do it. He will come alongside you and take care of those things in your life with you. If you're in the spot where you've had the thorny ground, you've had a fertile place ready to receive, and yet you've let all kinds of other things come in along with the word of God, the thorns and the weeds and the thistles, they've grown up and they've choked the word out. Ask him to remove those things in your life. Ask him to remove the influence that's taking a hold of those things. It's choking out your joy. Because here's what the fruit is really supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And so when you go through your life and you look and go, I'm not having any joy today, I can assure you there's some gardening that needs to be done. I don't have any peace in this spot. There's some gardening that needs to take place. My, my patience has run thin. That never happens to me, thankfully. If your patience has run thin, that's a spot where the Lord needs to address in your life. These are opportunities for weeding and growing, and that's the Christian life, friends. It's all about tending and weeding and working through your garden with him because the result of it is when we get to a place where we have good ground ready for him to sow, nothing can stop you. It's 30, it's 60, it's 100-fold. God will provide the increase. And the real thing that's stopping you, it's being willing. Angela had Bible study for years with this lady, and I remember her saying, this is what she would always pray, Lord, make me willing to be willing. Are you willing to pray that today? Make you willing to be willing. That's the first step. Our pride, our own selfish desires, these are the things that get in the way. Are you willing to let him make you willing? And so, Father, we thank you, and we praise you for your word. We praise you for this good seed, which you have sown here today. How to take hold, I have no idea. I'm excited to see it someday. But, Father, thank you that you've given us your word to be able to share, to be able to scatter. Thank you for giving us influence in people's lives to where we can scatter in their lives as well as you provide abundantly to us some 30 and some 60 and some 100 fold. Now we just have more seeds to share. So thank you for that promise, Lord. And Father, as we examine our hearts in this time of communion, that's what it's all about, looking inward to see what it is you want to expose. Father, please show us the hard places and the stony places and the weeded and thorny places that have come up. Lord, help us to cultivate those so that they too can be ready to receive seed. And thank you ultimately for the promise that even if we sow in tears, we will reap in joy. And we praise you in Jesus' name. As Jake and Michaela play, I want to encourage you to at your leisure come up and take the elements. I will also let you know that top little piece has got the bread in it. The bottom has got the, the juice in that. So if you get mad at the top part with the bread, uh, don't become the cussing Christian. Just take your time. It'll be okay. We'll walk through it together. We'll all take the elements together here in just a moment.
chapter 11, uh, the Apostle Paul was addressing uh, the church there in Corinth, and they had gotten themselves all spun up with the cares of this world and with riches. They were a very wealthy society. Uh, We could maybe call them first Coles Countyans, perhaps. Um, But as he's addressing them uh, there, he's bringing them back to this point of communion, uh, to where they could really come back to the point which was all about the blood and the body of Jesus what he had actually done for them, what he had laid on the line for each and every one of them. So as he addresses him there in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we give thanks for this bread. We remember your body, which you willingly and joyfully laid upon the line for each of us. Had yourself nailed upon the cross, despised the shame, and yet for the joy that was set before you, for for each of us right here, you allowed that to take place. And so we remember, and we thank you, and we thank you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. And in that same manner, he took also the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, 
and the new covenant in my the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Father God, we proclaim the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes back for his bride, his church, for the second time. Lord, we are so excited about that day. We're looking forward to it, and yet in the meantime, you've chosen us to be the vessel which your word gets carried forth to other people. And so, Father, please give us courage to sow seed in lives of people we maybe do know and do not know that may want to receive and may not want to receive. But in all this, we thank you and we praise you for giving your blood for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, one final song. Let's all sing Marvelous Line. church says amen all right thank you guys so much for this morning all that communion was all about you've been redeemed by the blood of jesus so there's nothing holding you back uh, any longer so praise the lord for that and you've also uh got lunch downstairs so praise the lord for that too so if you would please stick around join us for lunch uh, help us celebrate uh, ethan and macy and two beautiful little boys that are going to be on their way uh, soon not right now soon, I hope, right? You got another? Okay, we can get through lunch. We're good for now. 
Macy says we're good for a little bit, so we're going to get through lunch. But uh, please join us as we celebrate them. God bless you guys.